welcome to Tones and Drones, an ambient music podcast. I'm Jason Miller, your host. On this program, I speak with musicians who work in the vast realm of ambient music. The show is produced in the studios of 91.3 KVLU Public Radio. On this episode of the program, my guest is Forrest Fang. He's a composer, a violinist, and a multi-instrumentalist. You'll see what I mean when we get to the interview. His albums really create these cinematic worlds, and they just have so many things to pick up on when you're listening to them. It's really a remarkable listening experience. His music fascinates me because all of the different sounds that he creates using a wide variety of instruments from around the world and they add a very unique texture to his compositions and you can read the liner notes of some of his albums and see all the instruments he's playing and you can just like so many you could just look them up individually and find out what they are but the main thing is that they blend in there and they add so much to the world building musically that he creates in his compositions and so in the interview on this episode we talk a lot about the instruments that he uses and his um really his, his real passion for instruments from different countries and being able to utilize them in his, uh, in his work. And we'll also be um, playing some excerpts, as we do on this program, with music from some of his albums. We began the show with the song called Glow from his album Gongland, and we'll be featuring some music from other albums throughout our conversation on this episode of Tones and Drones, which begins now with my conversation with Forrest Fang. Hello, Forrest. Yes, hi, Jason. Good morning. Oh, good morning to you. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, so it is like uh, good morning to the West and good afternoon to the East. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm really glad that we were able to talk. I've been spending uh, some time with your music in the last several days to kind of uh, listen in deeper. And, and thank you for sending the specific uh, songs to underscore things with. Sure. I thought that would that would be kind of like a overview of my where my sound's been recently, as in maybe in the last twenty years. I guess that's <laughs> relatively recent compared to the rest. But <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, strange, <laughs> sure. Selecting the excerpts of your music like that um, was re- was really helpful because it 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 sort of I, I've gone to different albums in kind of not chronological order, and so this kind of arranges it in in a, in a different order. And um, I, one of the things that from your music that there's a couple of different things that I've, I've, I've gleaned from it personally that, that I want to kind of approach and then anywhere else we go. But sure. um, I, since you had sent the information, since you had sent the songs, I had, I went to, I went to your album Gong Land and I, I re-listened to that, to the album. Now <clears throat> reading on the pop project label where you have a lot of your music and, and, 
if people have listened to the podcast before, they heard an earlier episode, or if you haven't, you can go back to the one with Sam Rosenthal, where we, we talk about like episode three, I think, and you can talk about, listen to about, about Project Records. But Gongland, was, was that your first official release? Yes, for Project. Okay, okay. And my, my musical uh, discography actually goes back to 1980 in the days of vinyl and tape. Okay. And um, I did go through a number of stylistic, I don't know if they, I, I, I wouldn't say they're radical changes, but I'd say there was kind of an evolution going, going on if I look back on it. And I think the reason I chose starting with 2000 is not only because it's the first album I did for project, but also I think that was kind of like, I see that as sort of the beginning of my attempt to really define for myself what my sound is and had a better understanding of, of what I was trying to do. I think with the other albums I was experimenting, um, and I, I still do that, of course, but it's, I think when you're, at least it's been my experience that when you're early in, in um, early in, in, in the creative process, especially as you're just getting started as an artist, um, the first thing you tend to draw on are your influences. Okay. And I had some pretty heavy influences in, in terms of, um, progressive and electronic music from the seventies. And so I think my earlier, and then also some, uh, the, the, the minimal, the, uh, minimalists that were popular in the seventies, late seventies of T Terry Riley, Philip Glass, Steve Reich. And so I think my first couple albums, I think I was, I was probably driven more by the influences and it really took me a while. And then on top of that, I started doing other things and, and started to incorporate kind of a broader palette and, and studied, uh, Chinese classical music and, and then I, I was did workshop it with a, a gamelan group, local gamelan group here, and also was part of a gagaku group. So it's really just a lot of different influences that I wanted to, to, to find some way to bring it into into the music. But it it was a fairly organic process, I think. One of the things uh, listening listening to your music that I, that I got from it is working in 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 some of the various realms. Uh, that are covered on this show and ambient and drone and different things like that. Like I hear the electronics are in there supporting it, but I hear a very organic, uh, organic sound. I hear a lot of instruments from different cultures and, and, and that comes through like in the arrangements very, very well. And so all those textures are there and are you using a lot um are you using a lot of acoustic instruments for lack of a better um, it's, word? It's a mixture of both. It's really kind of varied over the years from okay. release to release. Um, I'm probably strongest in the area of stringed instruments. Okay. Um, and I, but, but really my primary instrument is violin. Okay, sure. And so everything else that kind of flows from that, I mean, I, there are other related stringed instruments in terms of string family, but, uh, I, I can't say that I'm a virtuoso on any of those instruments, although I did study the gujong, the, the Chinese zither, which is somewhat similar to the uh, Japanese koto. Okay. Um, yeah. Studied that in the 1980s. And and then I've, I also studied gamelan, and I have a couple of pieces of from a gamelan, from a, you know various sources, but I, I've, I've managed to work those in as well. And so, yes, I do have instruments, real instruments lying around, like you know, pieces from a gamelan. Um, and... I, I, for a while I was, I was collecting a lot of these instruments. So I, it's been, I'd say I had one album in the, in the early to mid nineties called Folklore, which was on the Cuneiform label. So this was before I, I was with Project. 
And I think there, my during that time, my music was a little more, probably a little more experimental. Um, a little, there was a little bit of ambient in there too, but a very st much stronger world progressive influence. And on those in particular, I was trying to, I was really trying to find ways to, 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 to use almost everything I had and try to find a way to work it into my pieces. Nice. Uh, and so the probably folklore, which I, which is, is not one of the albums that I, I sent you a track from, but the folklore from the mid nineties was probably, well, that's the first, that's around the time that I met Robert and he actually mixed and mastered that album. That was my, the first, uh, I, I met him at, at, at a, uh, Jorge Reyes performance when he came to the Bay Area. Nice. And um, although Robert remembers it a little differently, I remember it as Stephen Hill introducing me to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, regardless, we went, we went at that show and um, I, it, you know, that's, I can't believe that it. it's like almost 30, they're almost 30 years ago. It's just unbelievable how time passes, but he's been a good friend over the years and we, we've, we've remained you know in touch and fairly close he's actually lives down in mountain view which is not very far uh from from berkeley where i live so it's about maybe about a little over an hour's drive um but uh so i've over the years i've played on some of his albums he's graciously played on on a few of mine and of course he's been doing all of my mastering because i just love his his ears and his ability to um really make something sound a lot better than it did to me when I was, when I was mixing it. So I mean, the mastering is a really critical stage. And just over the years, I've learned a lot um, about just, just talking about, about engineering and sound and kind of looking for certain frequencies that, that can, that bug the ears. And, and I'm, I'm starting to get better at that now. So I think actually my last couple of recordings, I'm starting, I feel like those are much more refined sonically than what I was doing before that. Do you record the albums uh, like at home studios? Uh, it literally is my bedroom. <laughs> I re okay. It's a bedroom cool. studio. Um, and uh, I, you know, I've got I have pretty decent microphones. I've been using them since the mid nineties. Um, I used to be recording, well, the, I, I should probably back up a little bit. Um, at the very beginning, when I was, uh, the, the time of my first album, I, when I was at, uh, at school at, at, at the university in uh, Washington University at St. Louis, I had access to a four track electronic music studio, which was fantabulous. I mean, I <laughs> had these great, these huge 3M four track machines that there, that were like four or five feet tall, or I guess about four feet tall. And um, I think, what was it like two inch tape or something? And uh, these, these, uh, Otari two track machines that were just fantastic. And, and I was, I was, that was the period I started experimenting with tape delays and um, first two albums. I was very fortunate to have recorded those in, in a pretty great circumstances in terms of quality of equipment and so on. And then once I got out of school then I, I kind of joined the DIY <laughs> scene uh, having to kind of make a do with the resources that we had. I, I, I did have a, uh, I bought a, a a four track recorder and I, I was able to I kind of squeeze my budget a little bit and bought a, bought a, a, a reel to reel instead of a Porta studio. And what that enabled me to do was to overdub in a way that didn't just make the whole thing sound unlistenable through all the hiss and everything. <laughs> and I had like a DBX unit and I was bouncing tracks and I did that for a number of years um, until I had, I went actually through four, four albums. 
want to say four albums, four or five albums. It was right around 1992 when I went digital and I bought a, uh, I, I blew 4,000 at that time. That was a lot of money for blew 4,000 on an ADAT. Oh, sure. And, and kind of went digital. And so folklore was the first album I recorded using that digital equipment and it, and it got better microphones and just, I, I wanted it to sound more professional all around. Um, and uh, I think with the limited, you know, abilities I had at that time in terms of my technical abilities, I think it sounds like a pretty, it's a pretty decent album considering that a lot of it was recorded acoustically. Um, and I was doing uh, track bouncing. Um, I don't know if I would do it the same way today. I, I then, I, I stuck with the ADAT for a number of years um, through the Gongland album. I was, that, was, that was still being recorded on an ADAT. And then what happened is I, uh, in 2008, 2009, I went the laptop route because my, my ADAT caught fire. <laughs> it just Whoa. completely went kaput. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. Those things so, <laughs> were finicky sometime. We use those in radio for a while for longer programs. You know, we were using yeah. those, the ADATs, because the, we were using the mini discs but like right. we could get longer, we could get longer uh, cuts on the mini disc before they had the mini disc long play. And so, yeah, I remember those ADATs and they could be kind of finicky sometime and they kind of wore yeah. down too. Absolutely. Yes. And, and it didn't help that it was in the middle of a heat wave. And so the temperature was a little too, probably too, a little too warm in my place at the time that this all happened. And um, it was a, it was, it was not salvageable. And so I, at that time, I, I didn't have the resources to, to buy a new one or actually at that time i just i just decided what the heck i'll try i'll i'll see what this whole thing is about using your laptop i was very uh, <laughs> reluctant to go that route and up to that point i've been using nothing but outboard gear for the most part and um, i'm glad i'm glad i took that initial step i mean it took me a couple of years to get really used to that world and i think my understanding was on a fairly basic level for a couple of years so like the the phantoms album I used fairly, I, at least, at least a court, I mean, compared to where I feel, I feel like I am now, I was using fairly primitive means to, to record. Um, I was using um, the program acid, which yeah. is not, not so, particularly well suited for, for this type of thing. And I was doing a lot of stacking in, in software programs based on the outputs from, I mean, it was, it was a very messy process that what I did and it wasn't, it created some interesting results. Um, but it was somewhat unforgiving and, and not terribly flexible in terms of once I once I did a submix, I was kind of stuck with it, at least along the way that I, I was working. I, I, I kind of block, tried to block part of that period out because it was I think some of the results <laughs> I was getting were pretty awful. Um, but uh, I I did kind of eventually upgrade and get get a you know at least a pretty decent laptop and got much more familiar with the world of plugins, which I think kind of opened a different area for me in terms of how, how to treat sound. And, and I think one thing that that's, I, I wanted to mention is, because I think it, I, it, this area is, is a little um, amorphous to kind of, I, I know some people really object to the term ambient music. I, I, I remember using that term recently in connection with Harold Budge, which I found that some people did not like it and even pointed out to me that Harold Budge didn't like it, you know, well, uh, what can I say? I, I, I think it's it's hard to describe this kind of music adequately, and it probably covers too much ground. But I think in my case, that term was helps describe what happened 
in my evolution over maybe the last 10 years where I was, I was really in, what I was doing was finding out that where I wanted to start in terms of my creation was with, with the sound and, and that my creative process would all be driven by the sound and not by traditional means like notation. And cause I, I had, I should, I should back up. I have, I had formal study with composition. So yeah, I was, was going to, well, I was going to, yeah, thank you. Cause I was going to ask about that being primarily, you know, uh, your main instrument being a violin. I was, I was going to wonder, right. you know, did you study the classical works and the classical style and method, you know, composition? right. So I was very familiar, you know, from, from playing, you know, from studying the violin, I, I could, I could read, of course, read music. Um, and when I was in college, I was studying with a, a teacher, Roland Jordan, who was from the 12 tone school. Okay. And so that was kind of interesting because I was having to basically learn all about tone rows and just kind of like puzzle games to me where you basically, you would, part of the name of the game was to use up all 12 notes of the octave before you used another note again. It was all these very odd sort of rules. And that's where I, and then I was at the time, same time I was studying more conventional, uh, at least for me, um, counterpoint and, and basic harmony. So I had that kind of grounding, but I was really more interested in it at that, that time is in minimalism. And so, you know, like for me, the probably the most influential album of that period for me was uh, Steve Reich's music for 18 musicians. Sure. And, yeah. and probably a close second would be Brownie Eno's music for airports. So those two albums, and then maybe third, I'd, I'd say some of the albums of the, of the band Jade Warrior, because I felt that they, they were a progressive band um, on, on Island Records uh, most of their existence. And they had a series of concept albums, which really appealed to me, like these suites that would one, one piece would blend into another. And I wanted to try some of that out on my own pieces. Um, but just the idea of combining all these different world influences, particularly influences from Asia, um, that, that's what that really intrigued me. And so looking back, I could say that those three albums are probably where I, my starting point was when I started uh, creating music. Uh, Steve Reich, the music for 18 musicians, it always fascinated me how he was able to kind of compose the phasing. Like I just, that just, I tried to just wrap my head around that, you know, like how did he notate that, you know, and I found that pretty fascinating in, in its own right. right to create that sound um, with, you know, mallet players, you know, and not, not electronic instruments you know that's acoustically, right acoustically with I think um, it was, wasn't it drumming know. from Ghana? i think he, he studied in addition to a little bit of gamelan i think that he he the, the drumming aspect of it was a big part of that interlocking phrases idea that he had yeah um yeah it's it's there's nothing there's nothing like it, it there's nothing like it i mean it, it's it just it really stood out in a way in the piano phase piece his piece piano phase with, with yes. the with the gamelans i this is an instrument that there's a, a show here that we run that that uh, that plays music from around the world and and I'd heard the gamelan before and I, I would I, it's one of those instruments I would like I would like to to have one and there's something about it that I, you know the first like the first like gamelan I videos I was watching you know a few years ago were these massive ensembles of gamelan players and it was it's just this it's a large sound. And, right. and then also it can be very, very small too, and very um, kind of a dreamy kind of quality to it, you know, but it's, there's a piece that you had, it's like a chaos gambling and, it, and, and, oh. and, 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 and 
when I'd heard that piece, I was thinking, yeah, it, it, it's, it, it, it can be just this, when you watch these large ensembles play or, or being filmed, it's just, it's a, it's a massive, a massive percussive and tonal sound. And, and uh, what, what uh, grabbed your ear about that instrument and, and uh, uh, how, how did you kind of start working it, working it into, to your composition? Well, it, it's, um, I'd say that the term gamelan actually refers to the ensemble of instruments. It'd be probably more technically correct. Okay, um, cool. And I think what what appealed to me was not just the the metallophones, and also there's like, you know, the Javanese uh, version, in, which is very different from the Balinese version. Um, okay. But okay. but they have, what they have in common is that, the, you know, these family, uh, families of, um, I, guess you'd, I guess you'd call them metallophones, um, different sized and then different sized gongs. And the one thing that I didn't pick up on, I was trying to figure out where am I hearing the sound? I, they, they, I saw a performance of a gamma, uh, one of the early times I saw, earliest times I saw gamelan performance was in, was when a group from, it was like the year of Indonesia or something. And there was, there was a group that came over from um, Java and um, I kept hearing this kind of vibration thing. I, would, I couldn't figure out how, how they were doing that. And years later I learned it was they have that particular sound I was hearing was two uh, of the same instrument, but one was slightly tuned below the other. And what you were hearing was the vibration between the two notes that were slightly out of phase or out of pitch mm. with each other, but it created this, this shimmering sound. And just that really fascinated me. And this kind of gets, got me into this whole other world that, that, that uh, Robert is much more well-versed in Robert Rich uh, of, of um, just intonation and, other, and alternate temperaments. And and I was fascinated with 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 these unusual tunings that these other instruments had. And I know that 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 in its purest form, it's kind of heresy to be trying to combine Western instruments with these instruments that are not tuned to the equal temperament scales. And and uh, but I I was hearing something in my head that I thought, well, that this this could work in, in theory, and maybe it has more to do with the treatment of the instruments acoustically um through processing and maybe the if they're all treated in a more uh, as, as like, an, like an electronic sound with an unusual source that maybe i could find a way to kind of bridge those two different worlds um and so that's one that was that was one of my early experiments in trying to combine those that but i think i think most of that piece was was in that in alternate temperament but i did have one or two instruments i think where that were not um, but I was very interested in that, and I had a, um, a sound module at that time that 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 was that it was amenable to just intonation, different tunings. So I had fun messing around with that. But it kind of took me off in a in a somewhat unconventional direction. I wasn't quite sure that w- that I that anyone would be interested in hearing it, but that really wasn't why I did it. So <laughs> there, it did, it did come from a fairly pure place. I was it, before then. I would I had a I should I should back up a little bit. I had a very experimental album I did in 1997, which was my second album for Cuneiform Records, which is, it was a great label, by the way, but it's it's more, that label is more progressive experimental. Um, and uh, at the time I recorded that album, I thought that was going to be my last album. And that's how I, that's kind of like the way I treated that album. It had all kinds of really outside stuff in it. It was not not quite as in the area of accessibility as folklore, which is the previous one. So this, this, this one was called The Blind Messenger. And um, so it had a different kind of audience than, than some of my other things. Um, definitely some, some hints of ambient, but it was really intended to just be kind of a definitive statement. 
And then, and then the years following after that, um, I kind of it got a little burnt out um, between, you know, between my, my work and, and uh, trying to fit music into it and kind of it, it, I ended up creating little pieces for myself was really what I was doing and kind of got interested in, this was in the early days of the internet, I got interested in some of the stuff was showing up, uh, uh, you know, in websites that had that that had unusual uh, subject matter, uh, like uh, sites devoted to fractal music, for example, music uh, created from fractals, and and sort of very variations or different flavors of generative music, what's now called generative music, music right. Um, that was very interesting to me. I think it, that was around the time also that I think Brian Eno had it, he was uh, promoting this program called Cone, K O A N, um, which was I think there was a company called Saseo, which I think it exists in some some smaller form. But back then it was actually they were actually promoting full on apps that would generate algorithmic MIDI um, data that could be then shaped into something. Um, but I got very interested in that as a sort of a different angle because I, I thought um, up to that point I had been thinking of this in a much more traditional way, of, uh, you know, composition in terms of a song, and 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 even if I wasn't notating everything that I that it was, it I was I had a more um, I thought I thought of each voice as is more or less an instrument, and then what I realized from kind of working more with with these kind of uh, generative processes and, and incorporating them in that that there was a whole other world I was missing this this whole world of texture and um, variations of texture and and so that I'd say for the last 20 years um, I've been much more deeply involved in trying to, un to understand that aspect in particular and not that I not that I not that I don't do the other things you know that I that I occasionally bring in melody and so on but um, it's it, I think it helps kind of center a lot of my work. So they start to have more of a voice and a sound. Um, and then I can kind of build on that. And sometimes I will add a more conventional melody on top. Sometimes I won't. If yeah. That makes sense. No, it will. It does make sense because the mu music that, that works in these different realms is usually composed in, in different ways from the standard notation type of way to do it, you know? And so I was curious about your approach to that. So no, it, it, it does. And now, and I guess your method has changed a bit from when you were like, you know, bouncing tracks and recording things onto real to real or to, to aid at versus when now you have, um, or you're using, or using software now where you have, you know, in the DAWs, you have, you know, as many tracks as your computer can hold before it just, you know, completely you know, goes away. I mean, and so, and so I know, and so it, I've gone it's through, tempting. it's tempting. And I, I've gone through a weird process myself where I was utilizing all those different tracks. And then I realized that my, my songs just needed like, honestly, just like one or two or three tracks. And then there's the idea of just recording into a recorder and then putting it on the computer, just record it to, to some type of, you know, we've got all these great little digital recorders now and kind of capture the moment. But, but are you, are you layering things what's your kind of what was the kind of a compositional approach i guess you could say from like say uh 2000 on when you started to kind of explore this textural textural aspect of of layering layering your sound uh well i probably had because i had fewer channels to work with when i was track bouncing 
Um, I'd say that Gongland probably has a more open feel to it. I left more space. Um, and it was, I probably felt, I probably at that time had less control over what I was doing. So it was really much more about capturing the, the good results. <laughs> the okay. times when I, I actually came up with something really interesting and making sure that I preserved that before I forgot what it was that I did. Right. Um, later, I think, I could say more recent, what's well, really been a gradual process. I'd say that, that I, I do have this tendency to layer quite a bit. Although that said, um, usually what I end up doing is kind of a subtractive thing, more like sculpture, where I, I start to peel away the layers. And sometimes the contrast between how much I peel away and not peel away create little holes for, for me to create little sections that where there's a little variation or some other development over the change. So that can become become sort of like the 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 shift in in texture so it doesn't just sound like one big monochromatic drone but i like the idea of having um a bunch of different things going on at different rates so that you don't just you don't just hear like the one finger melody or the one finger a drone um that's that to me is 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 more interesting to have a lot of things going on as long as you can keep it somewhat muted and not in, in, in the, in the face of the listener. Um, plus I use a lot of, uh, plugins. So that is a big part of, um, and, and I, and the way that I do it is very idiosyncratic. And so I don't use the same effects chains on, on, on different, each, each track has a completely different effects chain. Cause what I'm trying to do is to create a room within a room kind of thing. And, there may be like one little sound I want to be about eight feet away. And then maybe I want another sound that's about maybe that's a little bit toward the back and it's a little bit to the left. And I wouldn't do that just with reverb. I'd be doing it with a lot of other kind of effects. Um, and, and it, it's, it's usually trial and error. Um, but that's part of the, for me, that's part of the messy fun part of the process. Um, the part that's less fun is the part towards the end when you realize you're close to a piece, but it's not quite ready yet. And you're not sure what's wrong with the piece. Um, but I always like that initial phase where you're just messing around. I think what, what Brian, Eno you know, calls playing with paints. I, I really like that phase because just anything goes, you just try anything. It doesn't work. You just, you don't save it. If the thing works, you don't. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it doesn't. Yeah, I know. It, nobody it, has to know. <laughs> nobody has to know. That's right. That nobody has to know. You put it in, take it out and, and the compositions can lend themselves to, to, to doing, to doing that with, um, with with the um and also i like your i've always enjoyed your approach to rhythm like the rhythm in your tracks like sometime i'll find myself listening to a piece and then i i don't say i don't realize it but the rhythms are just blended in there well where they don't they they just they they blend up well with everything like that and you realize that there's drones going on but there you also have like a rhythmic feel going in there and like the different unique tones that you use to the rhythms that generate the rhythms i guess is is what i would say Right. And probably part of that is the processing. Um, I would guess I, without knowing what, what track in particular you might be referring to, but just in general, I'd say, yes, that probably it's a combination of different, um, settings and effects. And, um, it's, it's all by ear. So, I mean, I, I was just reading a really interesting, um, I don't know what call it an essay, but it, 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 I, I, I was looking the other day at, at, at a, um, little write-up that, that uh, Raichu Sakamoto did talking about um, this unusual project he was working on. It's an art box. 
And the way that he describes sound, I thought this is exactly what, what I, I like about the creative process is the idea of developing a sound. Now he takes it in a different direction. So I can't say that I'm, uh, that, that, that our approaches are the same, but I like the idea that, that he, here's somebody who's classically trained who, although he does do the conventional thing, you know, in terms of his, his soundtrack work for sure. And, and a lot of his earlier work, but you notice in his more recent work, it's, it's a little more abstract and, um, has more of an improvisational quality, which I, th- and I which to me is consistent with that idea that he's that he's he's really more after the sound, the creation of the sound, and and in his case he's it, he's talking about the idea of the incomplete gesture. Um, my my approach is probably a little more to fill it out, but with with you know with the idea of returning to a piece a number of times before I've concluded that that this actually works as a piece, so that it's it's not uncommon for me to go back to a piece I completed months ago and to just start subtracting from it and seeing if I can come up with something that was more di- interesting than what I came up with initially. And usually that's part of the, when I get to the point where I'm nearing tracks, I always think in terms of albums and overall collections of, of individual pieces and how they're going to sound as one unit. And I may go back and rework an earlier piece that sounds too much like something that I did two or three months later and try to try to give it a different direction things like that okay okay yeah it it the the aspect of um the aspect of minimalism as being able to subtract from it if when the um your your albums uh they to to me i i i hear like um you know there's there's some like world building in there to me like uh, you know we, we use the word soundscapes but the there's world building and and I, and there's like a cinematic elements that, that, that come to mind. And I, I wanted to ask you a bit about, about what are some of your influences? I mean, I, I was, I've been listening to you a lot to ancient machines. I've been listening to ancient machines and also um, the book of wanders and, and Gongland and, and uh, letters to when we were talking back and forth, music from the farthest stars was one that I'd listened, been listening to for, for a while what are some influences to these these worlds that you build? I mean, I mean, I, I really hear like you're creating this 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 landscape, this universe. And what are some of the things that that influence you to to create to create uh, uh, the albums? I mean, you can take you can any one that you'd like to to talk about specifically. I mean, of of those records of 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 ancient machines or letters to the farthest star book of wonders, any one of those that would come to mind that might uh, talk a little bit about the, the world you're trying to build the planet sure. or <laughs> we could well, maybe, say it. Yeah. Well, well, in a way I, th- I think of it as like a, a palette of sounds. So for example, with um, let's say uh, the, the um, piece that the three piece uh, suite sounds like I'm saying three piece suit, but the three piece suite uh, the <laughs> celestial diver, Okay, sure. Off of ancient machines, right? Um, that was directly inspired by um, an earlier piece I heard in the, in the late seventies by a, an Italian minimalist named Piero Milesi, okay. um, who also coincidentally was on. I, I think that that album at the time was on Cherry Red when it came out on vinyl, but then Cuneiform reissued it on CD years later, and um, I just loved the way he integrated an instrument I wouldn't have associated with minimalism, the harpsichord. Sure. Uh, into into kind of this hypnotic thing that that takes up the better part of side one, and 
I that this was this was my homage to him. So there's there's a there's a harpsichord sound in there, but I've got some very odd things going on around it, and, it, and it's it's doing a minimalist thing, but in an, in an unusual way. I don't I didn't want to just simply repeat what he did, of course. Um, but that was an example where I I I, I thought, well, why not try to do something? Because I have I thought you know what I haven't really completely left the the world of minimalism. Why not for that particular? I thought why not try to do something minimalist but using my current palette. So that was really the idea behind that is I, because I, I just hate the idea of repeating myself. So I thought, let me try something where I know I haven't tried this particular combination of, of both sounds and instruments before. Let me see if I can create something interesting out of this. There's a lot of pianos, uh, pianos on that album too. Um, that, that I, that I noticed is, that you're utilizing lizing too and, and like for like the using the fractal music how does the fractal music basically generate it like if you're using a fractal fractals to create create the piece well it, it can come it can take many different forms but it's it's usually some form of generative midi output okay and and what i tend to do with that is tends to be kind of my own thing and, and usually i like to break it up and and kind of deconstruct it rather than just to take it i mean like i mean it'd be you you could in theory create an interesting piece just simply by layering a bunch of different fractal uh midi uh channels on top of each other but but that would just to me that would just sound like like sound card music and and i it's it's really what you do with them that i find more interesting and so i sometimes i try to incorporate little accidents that I find when I combine um, the output from, from some of some of this generative output with somewhat unconventional sounds that, that, you know, I think the key here is that I'm not trying to replicate something that, you know, that in the, in the sound card world would just be a single sound. So I might, I might pull that data and maybe I'll have it, assigned one, you know, one channel assigned to one type of sound, another channel assigned to another type of sound, and then I'll start to process them in, in addition to that. And the idea is to create something that's much bigger than, than what those two little voices might otherwise suggest just by themselves. And to obscure it actually is, is, is a fun part of the process, at least for me, um, because it's really, uh, it's, it's all about the sound. Like I said, it, it, once I have an idea that I'm that uh, about a type of sound I want for a particular piece. These are just tools to get to that sound. Okay. And um, it's, I know the sounds are kind of nebulous, um, but it, over the years, it, it, it's become easier for me to figure out what that sound is that I'm trying to get to. It's just, I can't explain it. <laughs> <laughs> it with the, uh, and, and with the instruments, you utilize so many different different instruments on there um how do you um like how do you find some of the instruments and and how how many different things you'd be collected i mean it's been a real education process just seeing the different instruments that that you're playing and like just kind of going down you know that route of finding out what it is and where it comes from um and and i also was kind of curious too because it's like um do you when you get when you find different instruments are they like specifically like for a part like you're going to kind of learn enough to to 
you know, play this certain texture or part on it, you know, because it, it's really fascinating. I mean, it's like you must have quite a collection of of uh, various instruments that that you utilize on the records. Well, I do, but it, but that said, I don't have a harpsichord sitting in my bedroom, so there's certain sounds that don't. <laughs> you don't have you don't have in. the harpsichord. <laughs> no. Yeah, so, that would take up some space, and yes, and, it would. Uh, yeah. yeah, but but I I you know I'd say what I primarily have are, are stringed and percussion instruments. Okay. And sometimes I will take a phrase or or you know something else that's in, from a different context and, and try to rework it into something else. I know this is, this is sounding again, nebulous. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a form of sampling, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's that idea, I think in the nineties that when, when uh, Bill Laswell was doing a lot of those, those uh, remixes, the, I think the term came up recontextualizing, which I never yes. heard that term before. Yes. Something and like that. <laughs> re reimagining. No, no. He, right. Yeah, no, no. He, he, yeah. He did the, 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 the Bob Marley one, the dreams of freedom that he reimagined right, and that. Miles Davis. And, Miles, and, yeah, yeah, Panthers Lassa. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those are, those are fascinating. I haven't, I like the, the Bob Dylan one. Bob Dylan. He should do Bob Dylan. Bob Marley yeah, one true. fascinated me because <laughs> he took out Bob Marley and it's just the background singer harmonies. And oh, I remember right. that and, and just thinking, wow. I mean, yeah, it's a very, there's a very, uh, yeah, reimagined state to it. I guess maybe Bill Laswell didn't like the term, you know, like remix. <laughs> so I guess he'd feel like reimagining is. Right, right. Is so I'd say, I'd say that the, the, the key here is in using one of these unconventional ways to, to, you know, to, to work in an, uh, an otherwise, you know, well, I would say normal, but an acoustic instrument, I, I, I don't necessarily want to just bring it in. Like, like I'd be playing something like a little Western line over the top of it. Sometimes I do that. I do that a lot with the violin, but if it's an unusual instrument to begin with, I might want to do something different. That's, that's, that was my thinking is that I don't, I don't feel, uh, especially since my technique is not, on the set nearly at the same level on, on these other instruments to, to bring them in with really for more of a little bit of color or a little bit of something a little different is really more what I'm after and not, not trying to actually say, Hey, I can play this too. Cause that really is, it's not, that's not the point of bringing it in. Uh, it's more of a texture. So, I, I mean, what I've done in over the last two albums, and I probably continue to do this if I do more albums um, is to not, you know, to not have like a laundry list of all the things that I'm playing. I just think that kind of gets a little distracting. It's really more about the sounds. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I actually like the idea of having a little mystery in there anyway. So what is that sound? Yeah. What is that? What's yeah. making that sound? Yeah. I mean, right. it, and, and uh, no, I, I, yeah, I understand that. Cause I mean, I've seen string instruments from Turkey and percussion instruments that are from various places in Asia. And, and, uh, and I was, uh, I, I like researching different instruments and I just, uh, and or like, is it easier to, are there places that you're able to find the instruments uh, like on the West coast, like different um, shops and, and play places that have instruments that you can get access to some of these instruments that are string instruments from, from Europe or Asia or. Well, in the past tense, I mean, I, I had found a place in, in what I think is now a very uh, different um probably more um, congested area of San Francisco that used to be the Mission District. There was a, a very modest shop down there that uh, called Umboco that, that specialized in instruments from, from Asia. And I remember getting a, a number of things there. Um, 
a tin click, which is a, a bamboo uh, gamelan from Bali. Um, I had a, there was a place in Berkeley that was, actually it was, it was kind of sad they were selling off a gamelan individual pieces because nobody was interested in buying the whole thing. It's usually it's a whole set. And I bought two pieces out of the set because um, I thought I should at least have two instruments that that are in tune with each other. <laughs> um, and I, I've used them off and on over the years. I, I did recently have them um, kind of re restored. I have to say that they were very significantly restored by this very talented um, gamelan builder and composer, uh, Daniel Schmidt, who himself, you know, he's still still active and he's, he's, uh, he teaches as well. And he spent a, a, over a year uh, working on, on uh, basically uh, replacing key parts of, of, of these pieces from a Javanese gamelan, which I would have no way of knowing who or where to go for these things, much less somebody who would be able to do to, to the very thing that he did. Very special, um, and I, I really hope to work that in somehow into to my current work. That these these I actually had he restored two pieces, and then, and then he had another piece that he thought I might be interested in, and I picked that up too. And that one's a really funky instrument that uh, much much more folksy, with almost like these oil look like little oil, uh, or I don't know what they are. They, they're like shaped like old metal cans for resonators below the the uh, resonate as resonators. Um, and, and, it, but it, the, the cool thing about it is it has a great low register. So I got to figure out how I'm going to work that all in, but that this kind of stuff really keeps me going. I really am interested in these types of sounds and, um, it ultimately that's that it, it, even, you know, it's, it's the sort of thing where I want to, um, should I say, I kind of, kind of got off track of what you originally were asking me, but oh, no it's, it's the idea. I, I you know, I, I, I am kind of uh, limited by space, I have to say. So, mm -hmm. you know, my wife's very understanding, but to a point. <laughs> so I, I, I have to make sure that, that there's no space for her and for us to just basically uh, get around. And so um, some of my instruments are actually in storage now. I, I keep kind of a core set out here that tend to be the ones that, that show up on my albums yeah we've um, but I also we have, for a while you know, it's no i know what you mean spaces is definitely something to consider with instruments no matter what yeah, yeah one that I, I i think is still available i see it occasionally appearing on ebay um is the uh, ukulele i actually have a several different uh variations on that there's they're, they're part of a whole family of instruments the piano lin, the ukulele um the Marxolin. I don't know if you're familiar with the Marx colony of instruments. No, I'm not. They, this was like in the, I want to say the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, and they, the Marxo chime colony, and they have the, some of these instruments are they're all kind of related to um, the contemporary zither. I even have a really odd shaped instrument, uh, what's called a simplified violin, that I've used on one or two albums. That that's the body is in the shape of a triangle, like it's a balalaika. Right. And the strings right. strings have no bridge. They actually go straight out to the end piece. Um, it's the strangest looking thing you've ever seen. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've been lucky that none of the strings have broken over the years because <laughs> I wouldn't know how to replace, replace them. Replace them, yeah, that's the thing, yeah. 
and then I have a an instrument I've used a lot over the years, um, a banderia, which I found at a garage sale for seven bucks when I lived in San Francisco. Um, that's kind of like a has a, a bright uh, dulcimer like sound. I don't use it in a conventional way though. It's it's supposed to be like a played more like a um, mandola, and I and I still I tune the individual strings to different notes just to give some texture. Yeah, I was I was going to ask about that. Do you do you research a little bit of the of the technique of the instrument, or just try to approach it how you want to generate sound from it? Like as far as tuning and technique, a little of both. Um, I have to I have to admit some of some instruments I have 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 sort of stumped me. Um, I have a a Don Bao from Vietnam, and that one has really stumped me. I'm not. I would like to play it the conventional way, but it's, it's it, I would I would really have to study that one because getting the harmonic to ring um, at the same time there's like a little uh, chord there's a little lever on the side that it's almost like an acoustic whammy bar and I can never quite get that in sync with the, with the, with the tone with the harmonics very hard to get that going for me at least um, but I, I I it has a different sort of flavor to it. It's almost like a monochord sound. Yeah, most of my stuff tends to be in the stringed instrument variety. I, I have to say, I probably haven't been collecting as many of these uh, over the last 10, 15 years. Most of this, these acquisitions were in the 90s. Okay. There's also another Vietnamese music, Vietnamese instrument. I don't know what the name of it is, but it's like the, it's the, uh, I'm just going to kind of describe it as it is, but it's the one that's kind of like a, it's kind of xylophone like, it's wooden. Oh, right, and, right, right. I know and, exactly and, and, and it has kind like of a, a curve, like a rack. Yes, yeah. exactly. I don't remember the name of it. I need to kind of research it, but I like I've seen ensembles that had multiple instruments in it, and they have those in there too, and they have a really cool sound. I have a very tiny version of that, but it hasn't made it to any record yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a period there where I was going kind of nuts with it. I also have a a um, from from the early '90s when I, I uh, uh, was friends with uh, some very talented Tibetan folk singers who appeared on on some of my earlier albums. Um, I have a Don Bao. I'm sorry, a Damian, which is a Tibetan lute. And that's that's made it on maybe one or two albums. Um, that one that one's also very hard to play because it's it, the, the tuning is somewhat backwards in my, in my head. It's it's hard to it's somewhat similar to in sound to a shamisen, but the strings are gut and um, but a, a very long neck. Um, but that's one of those situations where I saw them perform and I came up, this was in the like late 80s. I came up to them and asked them, do you have any of those for sale? <laughs> of course, oh, I had cool. no idea how to yeah. play it, but I just <laughs> love the instrument. I mean, it must sound crazy to be asking him about that, but they were very nice about it. And they actually, Satoshi, uh, the husband, he eventually sold me one. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's, it's, it's a little picking up things, little things here and there, sometimes going to, to garage sales back then or, um, seeing something in a, uh, and some, some of these are in the unlikeliest places. I mean, there was like a, in the nineties, there was a store that was, you know, they did have a kind of a mixture of world goods, but a lot of it was stuff you could almost, it, it was to me, most of the stuff was, was somewhat touristy and maybe more akin to like something you'd see at pier one imports, maybe just slightly higher quality. Um, yeah, sure. But then sitting off in a corner, they had, they had a, a piece from a Javanese gamelan. So I was, I, I went, 
pick that up and it's a beautiful piece. Um, the, most of these are all the smaller ones that I, cause I, I wouldn't have room for the larger ones. Larger ones. Yeah. I've looked at them before on, there's a, there's a, an instrument, uh, place, uh, that I'd, I'd order from over the years. Uh, I think they're, I think they might be in the Bay area, the lark in the morning and right. They, oh they yeah, have... no, they're they're right down the. They're practically they're, they're about five minutes away from me. Oh, you're close. Cool. Yeah, that's that's how I had to get some stuff here in Texas. Was had to call them. Ah, yes. Yeah, the, 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 the owner is very friendly. I actually um, bought, although I haven't put it in, used it in an album yet. I, I, I believe I bought a guitar own, which is like the bass. Oh for, yeah, for the mariachi bands. The mans, right? Sure. And it's really and... light. What I like about it, it's really light, and you can get these really low notes. I thought I gotta, I gotta get this. <laughs> that just sounds great. That I don't have because cool. I don't have large hands. And I thought this is something I could actually play, <laughs> potentially. So that uh, that's another so example cool. where I have to. Yeah, it's very cool. So that's he has cool, a lot of yeah. stuff like that. He has gamelons too, or yeah, colonies. The Balinese. Okay. That's what he has. Yeah. Cause I've looked through them before. That's cool. Yeah. I've always, I like the way the, yeah, the, the mariachi, um, I mean, we can go to San Antonio here in Texas and there's a lot of mariachi there. Yeah. I love, I love the, yeah. the sound of the way it plucks and the way they pluck right. it like that, that unique kind of style of playing it versus like, say just a bass, you know, a bass guitar or electric bass guitar or something like that. And I also have a, um, cause I, I was, I also have a tenor mandola or octave mandolin, I guess what you call it. octave mandolin. Yeah. Which, I, is yep. what do you, what do you call that? I have one of those, the octave <laughs> mandolin. Do you call it this? The, Cause I think I bought it as an octave mandolin, but it's, that's not the, that's just sort of a, I mean, it's tuned like a mandolin, but lower double right. strings, right? Yeah. Double I've heard mandola strings. too. Like mandola, tenor mandola. And, tenor yeah. mandola. Okay. But this particular one, I, 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 I bought, um, from a guy who was part of a mandolin orchestra. Uh, this was when I, I, I was in uh, law school in Chicago. And um, this was in the early 80s. And I um, saw an ad for this thing. And I had I had a mandolin, because a mandolin is tuned just like a violin. Len, right. But I was always interested in the, in, in the you know, I thought it's something I could I could play. It's it's tuned in fifths. You know, I had trouble with guitars because because I, you know, my violin's tuned in fifths, and I'm not used You're to instruments that fourths. Yeah. fourths and whatever the yeah, third. Yeah. And um, but I had to go out to Cicero to get it, <laughs> and that's that's a pretty funky area. But I went out there, survived, and uh, very nice Polish gentleman, and he um, told me that the instrument was actually it was adapted from originally it was a balalaika. And okay. converted it into a, into mm. an octave mandolin. So I've it's, used that on a couple albums too. That's that's cool because it seems that instrument seems like it has a lot of cultural history to it. Like it, it's it's culture. It goes a lot of different places. The mandola, the man, the mandola, or the octave mandolin, or however you want to talk about it. It, it really yeah, does. And I, and I I enjoy playing those kinds of instruments in a kind of an informal setting. It's like I'm. You probably guessed from. Um, that I'm, that I'm not really a live performer. Um, but when it comes to things like I, I for a long time, I, I had been part of these uh, local um, mandolin groups that would just get together and, and, and sight read stuff or play um, traditional tune, tr I say traditional tunes, my folk tunes in the mandolin repertoire. So there was a guy in the nineties named um, Rudy Cipolla, who was sort of sort of a minor legend in, in the, in the area in the, in the mandolin area he was uh friends with uh david grisman 
right? Sure. Mandolin player. Yeah. And but I, I, he lived in an, in when at the time in the mid eighties. Actually, this goes back to the eighties. I think about it. I knew him from way back to the eighties uh, when I was living in San Francisco. He he owned a little shoe store in my neighborhood. I mean, it's so weird that the kind of small world uh, that existed in, in just in the little slice I got of San Francisco by living there for a couple of years in the eighties. But during that period, I, I got to know him through his shoe store and he was just sitting in there, his shop playing mandolin. That's how I met him. And he was, he was already in his nineties or late eighties, early nineties when I met him. And then, um, also in that neighborhood was the, uh, was David Harrington of Kronos Quartet. He had his office oh, there. The Kronos Quartet, yes. Yeah, and I, I met him also just sort of flukily. Um, I, we were, I was on the Muni train down to that area, com- coming from the downtown area, and I saw someone reading Terry Riley's score, and I struck up a conversation with him, and, <laughs> and he was very nice. And told him what a big fan I was of Terry Riley, and he got me in touch with Terry Riley. It was just amazing. Oh, cool. Um, and so, uh, oh, cool. anyway, so I, I, my, con- I guess I have more fun when I'm playing live. It's more in that context of playing, for, you know, just just for fun, for, for not not for performance per se, but just really like either. In the case of that group, we were just playing old traditional Italian tunes, which were some of which were arranged by Chipola, so they were really were a lot of fun. It's kind of like you, you feel like you were in an Italian restaurant, mm-hmm. um, and then later. Uh, there was another mandolin group I was playing in about 10 years, 10, 15 years ago. Uh, this, this guy out in, um, in Walnut Creek. And we would, we basically would be sight reading through, um, string quartets. And that was fun too. So that's more, more classical, but again, th- sure. it wasn't for the, with the eye of performing. It's just the idea of going through the material and, and just having fun. So you'd have basically all the, the members of the mandolin family present to, to, to duplicate the um, parts for the string quartet, the mandocello, the, the mandola, the mandolins. Yeah, that's cool to think that they're a family of instruments too. People might not realize that, that there's a there's all the voices. Sending some, some music, and we like to feature some of the music here in the, in the show. And I wanted sure. to talk about some of the compositions that you sent. Like we had talked about, we talked about Gongland and I want to talk about um, like uh, you'd sent a piece, Smoke Rings from from the Ancient Machines album, which we've we've touched on, um, but uh, just some of the songs, like um, specific ones that you sent, that we can kind of come in and out of uh, during the talk. Uh, like, uh, I wanted to just kind of ask you, like, different reasons that you pick some of some of those songs from the album. Like, just say from Ancient Machines, talking about the the three piece suite on there. But what was a particular thing about Smoke Rings that that you sort of saw as something particular that you thought would give an example of of something that you were utilizing while you know composing that album putting that album together well that piece was probably the most seamless for me to put together so i mean in terms of of you know i thought of in terms of of a process of organic process that one was probably the most organic in terms of knowing that i had something fairly quickly and uh, even though i was i was really mixing and matching a lot of different styles and textures and so on but it just something about it clicked so you know it, it it that one let's say that one clicked more rapidly than say the 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 individual voices the individual pieces of the of that suite okay. which took me a lot more time because I, I had a very specific goal in mind with smoke rings i started the whole thing with just a blank slate 
So I was just kind of saying, well, what about if I try doing this? What about if I try doing this? And so it had, it was, it was the idea of not starting with anything in particular and just sometimes letting the creative part just be based upon what I'm hearing. And that's that idea of, goes back to that idea I was mentioning of, of chasing the sound, that the more I try to bring in baggage, either in form of notation or too many concept, conceptual ideas, the more constrained I am in terms of what I'm actually, you know, what I, at least I feel that I, I, I can be more constrained and maybe in some respects, that's a good thing. But for this particular piece, I thought this was a good example of one where I didn't, it didn't require a lot of thought and it. I thought it, it, as a result, it had a more organic feel to it. into um letters to the farthest star which um it, you know and and i was when i was reading on the Bandcamp page I, I was reading on one of the instruments and said that you there's like the the albums have a, a narrative that you're evoking but not necessarily have to explain that narrative because people are going to listen to it and they're going to journey where they do but um what what is that idea of a certain narrative that you like to string together throughout your albums? Like just say letters to the farthest star, for example. You know, um, are, are those things that you have that in your mind as you're composing it a specific story narrative that goes with it? Um, well, at, for letters to the farthest star, I think I was the my frame of reference initially was um, the concept the i the the concept albums that Jade Warrior did for Island Records in the seventies. Okay. So the, the, this, these continuous sidelong suites and that in those days it was LP. So just each suite would continue out, you know, you'd have two, two extended pieces per album. So they like the floating world and uh, probably the two that influenced my thinking the most would be kites and waves. Um, and I thought those two really help. They, they, you know, without sounding too cliche, you know, they, they basically, took you somewhere and and that somewhere could have been not completely defined but it it, it was really more of, of a took you somewhere in the sense of moods and so the moods themselves could be open to interpretation so, so I, I like the idea that not having something that's so literal that if you don't quite understand what it is then you don't get it and the more open-ended it is I think the idea I had behind unreachable lands is a sweet was I was trying to describe something that I, I myself wasn't sure I, I had a full ability to do through music. Of course, parts of it would be left for the listener to fill in, but it, it, that way I didn't feel like I was, that it was program music. Um, I didn't want people to feel like they needed to anticipate a certain thing or, or expect a certain thing. It, it, it had to be malleable enough that it would fit an overall arc. You know, so the, so the, the suite kind of comes at the beginning of the album and then it's kind of like a, a, a suite within a larger framework it's kind of like a meta thing where then i have a much larger arc beyond the 20 minute the 20 minute suite arc that also tries to create a, a succession of different moods 
Each piece is not intended to be static, but but it is intended to build on whatever the previous mood was, and it could be a shift. It could be something, you know, that that, that go, takes you further out. But it's that idea of letting the sound kind of dictate wherever the mood goes. And and I noticed in the liner notes of that mentioning, there's a mention of your your fourth world in quote style. How would you describe that? Uh, well, that's that's probably about as unsatisfactory as as calling it ambient. But I thought it was <laughs> gives people a frame yeah. of reference. I mean, I'm no John Hassel. It's, it doesn't sound like John Hassel, right. but I think it what it's trying to do is to create its own universe out of in- instruments that that come from different cultures. So that's what it has in common. Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I, I'm familiar with that album with Eno, of course. Eno evolved yes, and right. involved in that to do to do what he does. Um, the the uh, and then the song picked from that one outside of the suite, um, Seven Coronas. Right. Well, that one I think again I feel like this that one went, had a fairly organic creation process, and the idea of this one was was created during the period when I was still using uh, a program called Acid, and I was having fun trying to figure out um, how to create the complexity of, of of the polyrhythms of a gamelan. So it's it's really the the goal I had for that piece was fairly modest, but I thought it actually turned out fairly well. And so I thought as a piece, it it it, it 
I was able to bring in the violin in a way that I think became more textural. Okay. Um, didn't and didn't quite say, "Hey, look at me, I'm a violin." <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's uh I know I know what you mean by that. I was I was just listening to this group on a, a it was a, one of the um KEXP, I guess, the NPR concerts, the public radio station concerts and it was this group, this Iranian group, like kind of rock bandish group, and the violin was was playing a very high type drone piece over everything, and you really had to listen for it because they had a guitar and a bass and a drum kit and a synthesizer, and the violin was powerfully textural, and it was just mm-hmm. sitting up on top there with effects on it, and and uh, it almost made you think, what is the violin player doing? But then when you listened in there, you heard that that on top and it, and again it was like you said it wasn't i would that was just a good way to put it, it wasn't screaming violin it was it was a very textural layer over over everything literally kind of higher and over what was going on in the rest of the group yeah in a way i feel like the i i have an advantage in that you know it's kind of like radio versus tv it, you know live performance you you have a chance to kind of survey the land and figure out what sounds coming from where Although you might be wrong, but if you have a chance to at least try to do that with a recording, it's just you don't know. And so right. that's that's to me that that the, the the artist has a little more leeway to kind of you know show the sleight of hand and, and sort of create little uh, textures that they where they can't figure out where it's coming from. Yeah, and kind of, and, and that's part of the mystery. I mean, I I I actually enjoy listening to albums where I find myself saying, "What what is that sound? I can't figure out what that sound is." And as long as it's a, it's a pleasant sound and not an unpleasant sound, then it, I think it works. Yeah, it, no, I, I understand that. No, the mystery is is part of it. And and on the on uh, letters to the farthest star too. If you I just mentioned right now, if you go to projectrecords.bandcamp.com and and project has is P R O J E K T, no C, it's a K. Um, on on you have the some of the the songs that have. Um, they have the ambient remix and that's kind of a place that you're able to really, is that, is that remixing those like that? That was a place that you were able to really um, pull things in and out to be able to create something different from the songs. Uh, and that was, that, yeah, that was an experiment. I, I, I had some fun really just collapsing some of those pieces and, and, and taking elements and manipulating them and, and, and just taking them away from their context to create something new. They, they, they were more like seeds of something else that I could okay. create. Okay. That, that was, yeah. Cause I, not, I, when I was listening to those, I was like, okay, well, this is, this is really showing something going on where there's things that you're, you're moving and moving around, you know, and they're the same parts, but they're being shifted. And it, yeah, it, uh, um, yeah, that was really, I, I like how they, uh, they, you, offered those on there though i think it gives a a great uh i don't know if i say remix but reimagining maybe might be the word right i mean i I should probably also add that i i have another although it's 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 not there are only a couple albums in this vein but um uh maybe only two in fact uh but i had a, a, a side project called sans serif yes yes which is more of a pure sound um at parts drone based, but the idea behind that project was very, it's very minimal and it's really more about manipulation of sound um, to the point where you're not sure what it is, but, but really taking that to an extreme. So it's really, although extreme is probably not the right word to use, but it's, 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 it's a little more, um, uh, what's the term, austere okay. in its approach. 
And so I had one album that came out on um, the label Hypnos. There's Secret Sounds label back in 2008, which is probably pretty hard to find these days. Um, that, was, that was actually my only CDR. And um, that one was called Tones for Lamont, as in Lamont Young. And, and the idea behind that album was to take a one single source of sound and create seven or eight different pieces out of that same source of sound. So that was really, really oh, conceptual. Okay. And, and, and each piece had a very different personality to it because of the treatments. Um, then another album I did a couple of years after that, and I think it's, it's, it's the only one that's on project. Um, it's a 2012 called Unbound. And that one kind of continues that concept of, of the treatment, but I kind of broadened my palette a little bit so that I wasn't just limited to the one source. That was just kind of a conceptual thing. And, but it was the it was same idea, taking one little tiny bit of something, uh, a sample, and, and on a very microscopic level and trying to manipulate that into a standalone piece. So those, those, those two out, that, those pro- that's really the sole purpose of that project for me with, those two no pun intended yeah <laughs> those two yeah, yeah. Um, albums for the sans serif under the sans serif name is they're really more about experiments i didn't want people to get confused and say hey this doesn't sound anything like a forest fang album <laughs> uh, which it doesn't <laughs> i've only done two of those so yeah okay uh, but it gave yeah the moniker able to give you that that uh area to be able to explore explore that it what what are your what are some of your favorite um instruments and 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 uh electronics to generate your drones with what are some things that you like oh that's i don't know if i really have a favorite um i you know traditionally i was using way back in the days of the dinosaurs i was using a korg ms20 okay sure before it before it made its comeback you know the original ms20 um and actually i i i confess i bought i i had a wave of nostalgia and after my my original ms20 ceased to become operational i actually bought that that tiny replica version that was that behringer had put out right yeah just for the fun of it because i actually have i kept yeah. my patch book and i have a lot i still have a lot of those patches i can recreate on this on this this clone so that was kind of fun because in the old days that's the way you had to do it because modular you, you can't it's almost impossible to remember what you did. And I think to some extent that's still true. Um, and maybe that's part of the fun, but I, I, yeah. <laughs> at that time I was, I, at that time I was just creating individual voices, individual, really like these, these were patches. Yeah. Yeah. Monophonic you know, like synthesizer. I had a, like I had a, you know, an Eddie Jobson synth patch type sound and I had a, um, a sound that was really more like a, you know, Canterbury type of thing. I, I, I had, very specific goals for some of these sounds that I that I was creating through my patches. Um, I don't use them that often anymore, but um, these days I'd say my drones tend to be kind of a hybrid of um, sometimes sometimes hardware, sometimes software, um, plus a lot of manipulation. So usually I don't stick with whatever raw thing I get whether it's virtual or not. And it, 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 to me, to breathe, it needs to do something. And if, and if it's just one finger on a keyboard, it's not doing much of anything. So unless the patch is, itself is evolving, but even that to me, I, I'm not a real big fan of presets. So I like to kind of 
use that only as a starting point if I have to, and to start to develop my own stuff, own patches. Okay. Yeah. The so much customization is allowed today. That's the that's one of the the great things about about what's a, what's available what's available to us. Um, the uh, um, I wanted to kind of look at. Uh, uh, the album, uh, the Book of Wanders, one that released uh, during the during the fall, um, is uh, is that an album that you recorded during the during the pandemic? Yes, the almost the overwhelming lion's share of it I recorded, with the exception of part of one piece, which I started right before the pandemic. Everything else is is recorded during the pandemic, through through about the early to the late, I'd say the late mid to late summer. And then Sam put that out fairly quickly. I usually I have a couple, at least a couple of months to wait, but he wanted to get this one out in September, which I think was a good call. Yeah, it this uh, the particular album. Uh, it's um, uh, I, I, what what was some of your intentions for it? I mean, there is there is a there is it does have a. Um, I know. I feel. I was reading. You know, reading the description, but listening to it, I feel the the element of of more of a like a. Um, there's this. I know. There's an uplifting quality there. I mean, I, I, I to to be able to explain it, but I mean, were were you were you trying to shape the sounds on there to have something that was that had a? I don't know what the exact word. What would you kind of say? You. What were some of the the? I guess your intentions on on this particular album and recording it and in, in in a in a such a situation that that we're we're still in but we're definitely just really trying to really make our make sense of it back in in the spring and into the summer of last year well i'd say i'd say about one or two pieces in because usually it takes me a while to to formulate a coherent concept behind an album and, and this one i was about one or two pieces in and then i really thought that what I was after, and I, this was really more from identifying it in my own processes, is that what I wanted to hear in my own, you know, kind of organic self is something that that to me represented, for better of a better word, is an alternate utopia, uh, or maybe alternate utopias. Um, and so this was a to me creating these pieces was a form of escape during that time, yeah. uh, mental escape. And I know that may sound a little cliche, but that was kind of the, the, the original idea I had behind it. And so I did want to leave, of course, that open to interpretation. So the idea of wandering, I think, you know, that that was actually one of the first pieces I completed. And I thought that that actually would create a good theme. Song the of the Wanderer. Yeah. Song of the Wanderers. Um, and uh, the some of those things, I think, Again, I, I tend to think in terms of the trajectory of the album as well. So some of these pieces, I only had one piece that I just could not find a place for it on the album. Um, but the other ones seem to fall in fairly well. But they all have that quality, I think, like you're describing. I, I, it's, it's a, you know, it's, 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 it's an emotional quality. You know, it, it's, a, it's a little bit looking forward type of quality. And it's aspirational. I mean, that's kind of the, how I felt that it was... Um, I didn't want to be too overt about it because it just sounds too cliche, but that's certainly how I was feeling when I was recording it. I thought, I thought this is something that, that, you know, there's no sense in having people feel worse about things during a pandemic. It's, that's certainly not what they want to listen to. 
yeah. and it's certainly not what I wanted to listen to. So ultimately, um, I, I'm probably my harshest critic. So I would start with that. If it was something that I thought was pleasing to me, then it might, I thought, well, this, this might work for, for people who listen to my music. And that's, that's, that's the way I work. I don't, I usually don't try to fit things into, into concepts that kind of let the process start up. And if I identify something that seems to be working, then I try to figure out, well, what is it about the other pieces that, that are just complementary to these, these pieces I finished. There's so many different moods that can be worked with. And I like a lot of people that listen to, to, um, to these various styles. I think, you know, they're, they, ex- I think they expect a wide range of moods. You know, I mean, it's over the years listening to ambient music. I don't always expect something to just say be to be quiet or relaxing. I like when it goes a lot of different places, but it has the aspect to to have that relaxing or aspirational um, feel to it. You know, those albums can be can be can be done, and 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 I think that's one of the the brilliant things about it. And and and, and the album's beautiful, and I I uh, thanks. I, I just. I really enjoyed listening to it and, and uh, it, I was, I found myself listening to a lot more expansive kind of music during, during that time. That's what I was really kind of wanting to listen to. And I usually always go back to jazz too all the time, but jazz and, and listening to, and listening to a lot of, of uh, more soundscape type albums and, and various world music as that's, that's kind of where I was going to. I wasn't really wanting to listen to any, any, anything else, any pop or any rock or anything. Um, just for whatever reason, I just wanted something that was, you know, a little bit more involved, I guess. This, I think one thing I, I haven't mentioned it, I'd, I'd sort of re- another thread that runs through my albums and I don't know how important this is to anyone else, but, um, for me, track sequencing is a big part of, of, and, and I, and sometimes at the end of a pro of, after having recorded all these pieces, I agonize over the track sequence, which sounds silly. <laughs> um, but like, for example, that first piece on the album, an Adam um, on a long chain, I kept yeah. going back and forth on that piece. Cause I kept thinking, you know, this, this piece calls too much attention to itself. I better put it in the middle. I thought, Oh no, then I'm burying it. You know? And I, I thought there's really, then I ultimately just decided there's really no way to disguise what this piece is. It's kind of just is. Yeah. And I ought to, I ought to be, more confident about its ability to hold its own. So I'll put it at the front. <laughs> I thought this is really an album opener and not, it doesn't fit any of the other places. So that kind of limited me somewhat. But I just thought, is this going to sound too much like, Hey, I'm me, you know? Uh, Cause my pieces don't, don't generally kind of start off with a bang. And I think that out al- that piece is, is sort of a little more forward than the other ones. Um, there's certainly a lot more going on in that piece uh, than some of the other pieces. It, 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 with uh that's the thing too well i mean i i i'm also from the school of like things that are an album that they follow into a sequence and and sometimes whenever they they're generated on like one of the digital platforms something like that they lose that because they play them out of order so it's uh, no I, I understand i understand what you what you what you mean by that and do, do you um or some of your pieces uh do you have to edit your pieces into individual compositions sometimes and into to have different tracks or or mostly are they composed as they are if that makes sense to be able to the flow of your album right well usually if i do any kind of editing it's usually while i'm building the piece up so for example um 
Atlant the piece Atlantis, which I think is the longest piece on the album, that was originally 16, 17 minutes long. I thought this is too long for what it is. I have to figure out a way to make this shorter. Um, and that was about midway through the recording process that I realized that I, I'm going to lose lose people's attention spans if I have this thing going on too long. Um, unless unless the ob- unless that's the object is to make them zone out, which was not what I was trying to do there. Um, I just felt like that's the, that's the, the delicate balance is you want to hold their, their attention just long enough until they start to say when is this going to change, and then you change before they're thinking that. Oh, okay, um, that, okay, that's the goal. Okay, okay. Yeah. But, um, you know, uh, just one other thing I want to add about that track sequencing is that it just reminded me of that, that, that I there was, I read this really fascinating article. This is years ago in uh, Tower Records, like another one of those stores from yesteryear. They used to have this uh, magazine called Pulse. And there was a there was a great article in there from the late, I think the early 90s about the, um, turn the name of the album. Um had a strange title. I, I could almost see it from here, but um, but the, the the band was Prefab Sprout. Okay, and um, it was one of their conceptual albums. Uh, uh, Patty McMacklin was the lead lead guy, wrote everything. But the article was really about how important track selection was on that album. Um, and I just thought, yeah, that's me. <laughs> I thought that that just hits it on the nail. That's exactly what what they were saying in that article is exactly how I felt about track select, track sequencing. And you know, just like you wouldn't listen to Dark Side of the Moon in a different order, you know, it's just right. there's something about the progression of those tracks that works. Um, and yeah, I feel I feel like it's, something's lost when you basically you're you're just another song on a playlist, and it's all kind of kind of like the days of the old iTunes when you put it on the random function. Yeah. Um, not yeah. the same. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not the same. Not the same also, yeah. especially it always would get me when a track would abruptly end because it was like morphed into the track that came after it. And, you know, so right. it's like, you're like, Oh, Oh, or you're like that abruptly ended or like a live jazz recording where like the, you know, it would upcut the, the audience because it flowed into the next part where the audience quiets down a little bit. And then the next start, the next song you know right. and, and it would just it was yeah that was always hectic for radio too because you'd have to put a fade out on there because you're like you didn't want it to 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 have that abrupt ending like that oh that's just like oh my gosh yeah and i, oh, I mean i feel and this is probably a very retro reference for your listeners i don't know but um probably the first time i came across that idea of the segueing was on the early moody blues albums because all mm-hmm. every track would segue into another and i kept thinking how would they how would you to cue up a, a song because it's like you'd be hearing the end of the previous song and then they start the next one i thought that must have been a nightmare for programmers yeah oh i know i know it's i know just like movie chapters on like dvds when they put them in chapters that was like kind of abrupt for me sometimes because it would just like jump right. into that and jump into the next one and stuff but yeah i know like you know i know what you mean the moody blues albums and they would uh and then there's there's notorious albums there's several albums as notorious is the right word but there's several albums that there is no they don't have a two second click in there you know or something like <laughs> it goes from one tag to the next like they morph right, right. They morph together you know um those bill laswell albums are like that we talked about the reimagining albums they're like that they flow right into the next song so if you individually right. if you randomize them they're going to keep upcutting every single thing that that it did before it goes into the next track and uh uh, yeah, there's something to be said for sequencing. I hope it doesn't and ever also, go away. That's right. And you, you just touched on another thing. I mean, this is probably like getting down into the weeds, but I mean, 
like Robert and I, when he's mastering my album, he'll be asking me, how many seconds do you want between the end of that track and the beginning of the next one? I mean, these are really important considerations. Yeah. But I, I, I agree. It's like, you know, this is important. If you have the listeners sitting too long, they're going to get bored or they're going to think, well, how come it's not, how come nothing's happening? And sometimes it, things just flow from the next and maybe you don't want it, you don't want to pause there. Yeah. You know, it's a continuation of a thought or something. Yeah. You, you don't. And, and the, the one second, the one second, like if editing, like, audio content or radio content, I always think of the one second as like a beat. It's just a beat. It's a click of a second on the, on the, on the short, on the small hand and, you know, the second hand, you know, and that can be just enough. But sometime when you start climbing more than that, it, it just becomes too long of a pause, you know, it and just... it maybe just maybe kind of a retro reference here from the nineties. I, I thought that, that um, Alex Patterson and the Arb were great at doing these segues with these lengthy mixes where they would have the things coming in and out and, it had an overall, but it still had that overall flow, but it, you know, you could have multiple pieces kind of following each other that way. So I'm not familiar with that as much. That's interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, especially the, the stuff from the early, the early nineties where they were really starting to take off adventures in the ultra world. I think that was their, one of their first big albums. And then, um, where the, of course they had some other things that were just these big blobs of, of sound like blue room, but, um, Anyway, yeah, uh, it's starting to get you off track there, but yeah, the, it's it's these kind of interesting considerations. I mean, they they, I I think that that there's something to be said for, you know, the the the, the creative process. There's a lot of little steps, and the more steps you discover, the more you realize that the overall process is almost. You know, I don't want to kind of make it sound you know like something that's greater than it is, but I mean, I think on a certain level, it's 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 like a craft. You know, like like the, you're you're trying to focus on each each step of the process and understand how it fits into the whole and, and certainly sequencing is part of that as well as even things like like track you know spaces between tracks and volume levels that's another thing you know how it, it's all kind of affects a listener's overall perception of the piece yeah it's uh no i um yeah that's uh the little fluffy clouds the orb that album right. the same album has got the little fluffy clouds it's got that yes sample that ricky lee jones that's didn't it. really like <laughs> was taken and used but um, uh, yeah, and again, th there's a group that's known for having things that focus in some kind of ambient ambient realm. You know that word though for us, it's like you know, it's like doing this podcast and 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 having the the artists come here on there. It's like there has to be a world. I, I when we had put together the name Tones and Drones, it was trying to stay away from ambient and just saying, well, you know, a lot of this music it has different tonalities in it. And it has most most of it has some type of droning in there. And so that was kind of my goal was to come yeah. up with not using ambient. But at the same time, ambient seems like it's a it's a it's a I mean, in my opinion, like electronic music probably has the most subgenres. Like it just seems like it has the vast most subgenres. And um, ambient is a pretty big term on its own. But um, it's still it's it's a. Uh, it's it's uh there's a lot of music within that that's very uncategorizable or i i don't there was a word that like itunes used to use and that might have been that unclassifiable or something and like i would look at my music that i put in there and i was like well i have a lot of music that's unclassifiable <laughs> i guess that's a good thing maybe <laughs> right oh no i think you it know? is i think it is it's i mean it's it's, it's broad and now I, now I think there's also the the kind of the the old school versus new school argument you know where where 
people say, you know, that stuff from the 90s, that's not really real ambient. That's not music for airports or it's not even on land. Mm -hmm. um, you know, or, you know, should ambient have beats? Should it not have beats? You know, all those all those different debates. Yeah. Um, and then but then the but, orb brings an ambient like ambient house, ambient techno with beats, you know. Right. So there's that. Right. Right. You know? And I think ultimately, it, I, I guess the way I feel about it is ultimately the, what what ties them all together is is the love of texture. It's just it's just a degree. They're more questions of degrees. Yeah. 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 No. And and yeah, the textural aspect and and there's also like there's there's space in the music, too. There's like there's some type of space that's represented in there. Something an atmospheric like quality. Space. The virtual right. space. Yeah. An atmospheric and virtual space quality that's that's there. And it doesn't have to. And it, it, it also seems too that a lot of the music doesn't it, the compositional aspect of it doesn't have to follow a, a form. And, and I think you, when you had mentioned earlier where like you, it gave you uh, a way to be able to, to compose and there's not necessarily any of the, the structure. I mean, that, that's something that seems to be present to a lot. There is, there is, it doesn't have a form necessarily. It, yeah. I mean, the thing I, I have to be careful about that though, in terms of, of how I use it, because I have to say that, you know, having that, that formal background does help. So I feel like there's, there's definitely a fine line out there, and I don't know what that line is uh, between improvising and noodling. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that what I try to do is I may start with a noodle, but by the time it's over, it's just something more structured. More structured to it. And, okay. and, but, it but, it's, but the raw material comes from somewhere else. So, I mean, maybe a good example would be uh, some of the, uh, like, there have been some recent recordings um, by John Hassel where he's basically taken... Uh, little bits and pieces from from live performances and recontextualize them um but he's done it in a pretty radical way i think it's very different from what bill laswell has been doing um and kind of turned it into his own thing and, and it's really is kind of like stands on its own as, as a as a new creation i think that's the really testimony to him but um that i feel like that's kind of a interesting area um but i don't know what just no, a it, just a thought. Well, no, it's it. Uh, thank you, because I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, noodling and improvisation becomes turns into something. I mean, there's a, I don't know. There's a jazz quality to improv to improvisation that is is utilized. I found in ambient music where it's like, you know, it's like they're, they're you're 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 building this this line. You know, you're constructing this line, and maybe in ambient music, you have the ability to edit that line, whereas a jazz musician, the line is flowing and it flows through and an ambient artist can do that or not. But but yeah, it's just the nature of that term is something that I'm kind of trying to reevaluate, I think myself. Uh, so well, Actually, you know, I think about with jazz, just to pick up on that, you know, Teo Mocero certainly as a producer, I mean, the way he worked with Miles material, yeah. especially on, on like in a silent way, he literally did yeah. construct a structure out of a lot of those improvisations. Yeah. So like with the, I think it was the, the title track, he, the, the beginning and the ending are essentially the same performance. And he, he basically tacked on about a minute or two of that to the end to give it like a little symmetry. Um, but there's quite a bit of manipulation. I mean, when you hear, especially when you hear the, the, like the, the complete uh, 
the box sets of the, the complete recordings. So you can start to yes. hear. Well, that's what they sound like when they were jamming. Mm -hmm. This is that's very different from jamming. when it got released. You know, and so there was something that's, that happened between that process yeah. to, to turn it into something more structured. Yeah, and and think how much that what his work was doing influenced music after that. Like him literally with a razor cutting and 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 splicing oh, those yeah. those recordings. Yeah, and listening to those box sets, I remember there's like different bits that I I like. Wow, didn't they release these? Like there were certain songs I was like, wow, you know, the, these were great jams, you know. But right. again, it, again, it was being reconstructed. It was being put into something else. It was being you know spliced and 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 the bits were taken in and out. So, um, I wanted to uh, I, on this show, I we've kind of get into it where we uh, kind of closing out. Um, I sure. just like to talk about. Um, what are some of the things that, that, uh, that you feel personally whenever you're creating your music and what are some things that you like to offer to your audience and have them kind of to glean from, 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 from your music? You mean in terms of how they're to, 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 to receive it or perceive it or? Yeah. How to, for them to receive it or perceive it and, and. And I also like to ask it as far as like, you know, you in the process of creating it personally when you're making the music. So sort of like your internal uh, uh, reaction to it and then what you kind of put out there and, and hope that the audience um, picks up. And if they don't, they'll pick up something of their own. But, you know, you know, because it, it's it's the the music is it's, it's very affecting. And, and I just was kind of wondering some of your thoughts on on that. Well, it, in a way, I think that the, 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 the process of creating it, um, I almost have to be in two different simultaneous states of mind. Um, one is kind of like the, the more emotional side, which is being very responsive to, to the sound and the changes in the sound. And that could affect a lot of the decisions I make during that, that creation. Yeah. Um, but then second of all is the more detached analytical side, which comes in and tries to deconstruct what I've just created and say, well, that doesn't quite work or that that little part needs to be a little bit longer. And one of the things that I try to do, um, and it, it's it also, I feel like this works much better in a home studio situation where I can kind of come back and forth, go back and forth with a piece and return to it days later with kind of a fresh pair of ears, is to, that second part is is usually a more protracted process. So let's say I've got like this great first take of something and it's got a germ of an idea, but it's, it still sounds like a germ. Um, I'll just let it sit for a while and come back to it and see if I hear anything differently and maybe try a few things, see if that works to, to either add or subtract. And it's, it's one of those trial and error processes, but usually it's hard to have both of those th uh, processes going at the same time. Cause I kind of, when I'm actually doing the actual creating, I kind of like to, to just let my mind go completely blank and just focus on sounds that I like to hear that are pleasing to me, but also wanting to try new things. So that's why I just, I, I have this feeling like, you know, I really don't want to be repeating myself. I'm not trying to crank out any hits or anything. So it's just more about what is it that I haven't tried or was this, so is there something, some different angle I can try on this to see if it'll sound a little more interesting. And, but, but it, it you know, it, of course, creating you fall back into old habits so usually it's kind of like a push-pull thing um so that's that kind of I think summarizes that's kind of how i would describe my creative process kind of throwing things up against the wall um 
moving them around and then coming back and revisiting them with a more critical eye. As far as uh, how they'd be perceived, that's, that's, I feel like that process is a bit removed from me, but what I try to do is set up as many conditions that are, are kind of amenable to the listener hearing it in its purest form in terms of what I'm intended. So the idea is to really get down to the weeds toward the end of the process of mixing and mastering and making sure that all those little bits and bobs get gets tied up and, and that it's as close to what I had in mind as possible so that when the listener is listening to it, the only things that are limiting their, you know, their ability to interpret what I've done is uh, the, the media that they're using, uh, that they're distracted. Other factors are just not within my control. But I would say that op for optimal, you know, I would feel that optimally they would probably get most of uh, most out of the music if they had headphones and if they were listening in a quiet setting. But of yeah. course, it's everybody, everybody's different. So, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to, them to think that there's an expectation I would have about how they would listen to it. If they'd rather have it as background even, I mean, that's fine with me too. It's, it, is, it is, after all, something that's more textural. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, um, no, I understand. Yeah, it's true. You don't know the setting. The setting can be what it is. But yeah, if you're spending time in headphones at, yeah, sure, sure. It's uh, where you can listen to those textures. And there's that thing about ambient music and music that works in that realm where you can, you're always finding new things as you listen. You're always can, you can always hear new things. And I think that's one of the really, really uh, great qualities about it. And, and uh, I, 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 I'm so, I'm so glad for you being on the show. And I, I just, I, I really enjoy your, your music so much. I, I just, I love all those textures in there and the hearing the different instruments and, and wondering where they are and, and kind of going with that soundscape that you, the soundscapes that you create. And uh, I really appreciate you for being on Tones and Drones. It's really just great to be able to connect. Well, it's, it's really fantastic to be in. I, I really appreciate your inviting me and to, to appear. And um, sometimes it can feel like we're just creating an music in a vacuum. So it's really nice to get this kind of feedback. Um, where are some of the places that you would direct people for, for your, for your music? We've, we've talked about Bandcamp, but you've mentioned some other labels. I know, you know, Cuneiform, I'd, I'd, I'd research them too, but what are some places that you like to, to recommend for people to go, um, to, to find your music if they, if they haven't discovered it yet and are listening in with us? Well, I mean, there's in terms of like retailers, cause you'd, you'd have like probably the easiest place for retailing would besides Bandcamp would be Amazon. Okay, sure. Um, I mean, they, they carry most of the of my project output, and I think they, well, they, I'm sure they would have the, they also, if people still uh, purchase digital files, I think they have that available in that format, too. Okay. And, of course, with Spotify that for streaming. Um, okay. I have to say I'm not a huge streaming fan, but, I mean, I understand the importance of it to, in terms of the whole ecosystem. So, I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't want to discourage people from using Spotify if that's the way that they are comfortable with it because my, my music is up there uh, as, as well as all the other, a lot of the other project albums. Very cool. Um, Forrest, thank you for being on the show and, and you're welcome to come back. We're just rolling with this podcast. We're just, you know, we're just, we're just kind of, we're just putting them out here and just, and, and trying to explore these realms of music that, uh, that is near and dear to my heart. And uh, it's, it's so great to talk to, to people that, that, are, are creating it and uh um are you working on anything else right now as we move into this new year i have started uh recording some new music i have maybe about 
a piece or two that I could say for sure is pretty far along. Um, my goal is to, is to, if, if, you know, if it all works out, I tend to record it spurts, but if it all works out to try to get something out by the end of the year. Okay. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Try yeah. not to flood the market with my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I uh, that, no, that's, that's, that's great. You know, this, uh, this transition to this year has been one of the, this has been one of the strangest transitions into a new year. I think I've ever experienced in my life oh, and, and, you know, it's just been that clock struck midnight, you know, and it's just like, all right, well, we're here, here we are. <laughs> it's, yeah, you know. yeah. When I when I said I like being a bedroom musician, this isn't what I had in mind. But I feel like I've been spending an awful lot of time in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> what what are the what are, I I guess that's what one, one of the benefits though of of creating the music, um, you know, using the instruments you do and recording recording at home. It's like you you don't have there's nothing necessarily hindering you from being able to create whenever the the environment outside is faced with something like a global pandemic. So. <laughs> But I, but I feel really badly for those who who depend on it on touring. I mean, it's just awful. Yeah, it is it's live music right is, now. Just I'm so ready for live music to to return. It's it just feels Me like too. it's been so so long since seeing a concert, and it hasn't been super long, but it feels like so much longer. So I know. <laughs> Keep our fingers crossed. <laughs> Indeed, Forrest. Thank you for this. Thank you, and good luck with the rest of the episodes. Oh, thank you. Honored to have Forrest Fang on the program, and uh, we played music from his albums Gongland, Letters to the Farthest Star, and Ancient Machines. And you can find his music at projectrecords.bandcamp.com. That's P R O J E K T records.bandcamp.com. And also, remember, Tones and Drones is produced in the studios of 91.3. FM KVLU. You can find out more about the station and stream the station at KVLU.org. Closing this episode with Forrest Fang's composition, Song of the Wander. I'm Jason Miller, your host. Until our next episode, may music bring you peace and joy. Thank you.